Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Out of the street corners, they scream. You knew it was coming. You've been waiting for this for months. Rumor hardened into fear and now they scream at you. The sirens, their hysterical wail tearing through the white noise of the city. And you run. You run to pick up those things that can never be replaced. A picture of them in the days when they still loved you. Your mother's wedding ring. And then you turn to your shelf of games. You only have room for five. Five games for Doomsday. Five Games for Doomsday is a show in which board game personalities are thrust into a cabin in the woods to outrun an oncoming disaster, but can only take five of their games with them. But which will they choose? My guest this week is a veteran and one of the pillars on which British gaming is built. With almost 40 years working in the industry, he's best known as the co-owner of legendary British publisher Surprise Stare Games. On top of that, he's designed games for Modifius Entertainment and written for TSR and White Dwarf. My guest this week is Alan Paul. Alan, welcome to the cabin. I'm so glad to be here, Ben. In some way or other, although also because it's a cabin in the woods and we've we've just had the um, the apocalypse, I'm not really glad to be here at all. Uh, well, you know, you you, yeah, you thanks, get you get to for, thanks for having me. In your you cabin. get to listen to my night terrors on a on a daily oh, basis, right. so oh. that'll be good for you. <laughs> Can I have my own as well? My own night. <laughs> well, absolutely. <laughs> We're very generous with the night terrors in the cabin. So so. To begin with, then, um, how difficult was it for you to choose the five games to take to the cabin? Well, um, it was pretty difficult. Well, we didn't have much time, you see, because because of all the apocalypsing going on. There wasn't a lot of time to kind of go through all 900 or so of my games, some of which are actually in the loft. So really, I, I was kind of having to look at the the most readily available ones the the um the cream that had floated to the top of my collection in the shelves um yeah it, it was very difficult i mean some things I, ha- I just had i would have loved to have taken but i had to leave out um what i've tried to do is have a a mix because i figured yeah well you don't know how long it's going to be before we get back to some form of normality a bit like now in in covid but yeah so i, I tried to have a mix of things um uh, but I had to, oh, it was really difficult ones because I had to leave out certain whole categories like some of the war game stuff. I just couldn't, I just couldn't take because I, I'm kind of, I'm figuring, will I ever actually get to play? I mean, I get to play them because it's one of those things, I suppose, in the apocalypse, how much actual 
niche gaming can we do? So, yeah, diff- tricky, very tricky, diff- difficult decisions. And, you know, you you said you've got 900 games. Um, do you see yourself as primarily a gamer or primarily a collector? I mean, how does one amass so many games? Well, I'm I'm not a collector. I think because we're a because we're a publisher, we always took the view that knowing a bit about what was in the market was quite helpful. <laughs> so hmm. uh, we would we would go to we would go to Essenspiel and we would just we would acquire lots of games, you know, for obviously and totally for professional reasons. Well, know? absolutely. You got to have you got to have lots of games to see what the market is like. That's what we as our excuse. Um, to be fair, um, I think in the early days we just bought just shed loads. We just because we had because we were going by car, we could take a whole carload back with us. It's quite exciting, really. Um, and so we did. I think we overdid it quite a lot because I think we've got quite a lot of games that we bought, like well, fifteen twenty years ago that we've never actually played i hesitate to say um simply because we had a car load and we could we are a lot more discriminating i think we're a lot more discriminating now but that's how the um, so i don't consider most to be a collector i'm not not really a collector i like i kind of i buy things that i like and i've seen and i want to play but of course sometimes when you're a publisher you get to swap stuff so we can swap things for for that we wouldn't necessarily buy. So that's how that's how to get a big collection to be a publisher and swap lots of things. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and you know, I've noticed in my near decade of sort of being a proper gamer that I go through changes and my my tastes evolve and develop into different things. I mean, you've been a gamer now for the the best part of your life. Uh, have you noticed that? Do you do you do you go through phases and have your have your tastes changed, or do you find yourself at this point going back to those original things that initially fired your imagination? That's a good question. I mean, uh, 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 when I started. When I started gaming, kind of serious gaming, if you like, I was more of a war gamer. So I, I, I played lots of hex encounter war games, and I played miniatures games and stuff. And I'm finding, I'm finding now, having now retired, um, I am going back to the, I'm going back to the old stuff. I even, I even broke out, I found and broke out of my collection a really old game that I played. I think I last played when I was about eighteen, and replayed it, and it was, it was great. It's like, it's that old nostalgia thing. Even though it's got its own flaws, and you know you recognise those, going back and playing the old the old favourites is quite fun. So my but my tastes have changed. So I, I think in the middle, I mean, I got into Euro games in a big way, um, and um, uh, but now I'm finding Euro games. There's so many of them coming out, and we've got quite a lot. So do we need any more Euro games? And I'm I'm kind of questioning that myself. Um, so I'm going back to I'm going back to kind of my original interest which is more war games than than anything i mean it's sort of become a meme now that we live in the golden age of board gaming to what extent do you think that's true and do you think that's a sort of or or do you think that's just a a a symptom of a lot of people coming into the hobby and the the chauvinism of the present time i think it's it's that um 
concentration on the new people like the new stuff and the, the market is incredibly much more competitive than it used to be so i think there are a lot more of really 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 good games there are a lot more great games out there of course there are also a lot more shall we say not so great games as well but I think the the really good games do tend to come to the to the top, but I'm not sure. I'm not. I don't really go along with kind of golden ages of things. Really, because I, I mean, I was as 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 a forerunner to this session here. I was looking back because I'm. I have been doing a bit more nostalgia recently, looking back at um, some of the games in like the 70s and 80s, and there were some really great games there. I mean, hopefully we'll get uh, when we get to my list. Some of a couple of them are there. Um, so it's yeah. I don't. I don't think there is. I think in war games, the golden age of war games, when when war games would sell uh, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of copies, that's that is back in the in the in the seventies. So, um, although there are really really good war games, great war games now, I think there were probably um, more back then. So, I think the golden age of war gaming was probably yeah the seventies. I think rather than rather than now, it's a bit sad. But but um, Euro games and, and what, you call, what you might call modern games, yeah, now is a pretty good time to be here. But you have to sift through so many that uh, you can miss the great ones um, and you can just suddenly find you've bought the latest thing and it wasn't as good as you really hoped for. So let's go back to the beginning then. So you were you were born in the late 50s and you spent your childhood in the 60s. What was Britain like at this time? And, you know, you're someone who's, you know, played a lot of war games. You're very much into history. Was the presence of the, of the war still around at that time? That's a really good question. I mean, I, I, mean, <laughs> I didn't realise at the time because I was only obviously very, very little. I was born in 57, which is only 12 years after the end of World War II. Um, but it's not until it's not until now that I've really got that kind of perspective on it. When I, when I was thinking about, you know, wargaming things in the, in the 60s when I was young, um, even, even in the early 70s, I, I, I've, I've always thought of World War II as being history, you see? Even though, you know, my, my dad went through it, um, he didn't. He didn't fight. He was too. Uh, he was too young to to fight in World War Two. Um, uh, but I, I always thought it was history. I, I never. I never got that sense when I was younger. I never got that sense of the reality of World War Two at all. I think partly um, because my first memories of 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 the environment I was living in 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 Huntingdon were after the big boom in house building. So you know we weren't in a situation where there were loads of craters around. Like what that. kind uh, of um, what what kind of place is Huntington? Because you know, I spoke to Martin Wallace, and he's he's sort of a similar age to you, and he he was in Manchester, you know, the industrial centre, and the 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 shadow of the war hung over, I think, these northern industrial towns a lot longer than they did in the south. What kind of place is Huntington? Well, uh, uh, Huntingdon, Huntingdon then was a a, a market town. Um, I don't think it, I don't think it had been really badly bombed because it was it, it was quite some way from London, um, and there were already there were already um, large council estates being built around Huntingdon. At that, I mean, Huntingdon since then has grown. It's it's quite it's quite a big town. I mean, technically speaking, I mean, I'm living I live in Warboys, which is postally huntington but we're like 
20 minutes drive up the um north from 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 there but but back then it was a yeah a small provincial market town it had some it's got some lovely old pubs um and hotels um and but, but my, my my one my one working class credential is i was actually born in a council house in the middle of huntingdon so i mean th- there were council estates um and um <clears throat> we had oh uh, one of the one of the memories i had uh, when i was like f- between like 5 and 8 something like that was there was a a big new estate was built to the to the north of huntington the london overspill estate and there was all these rough kids from london area coming up you see who we were who we were competing with on the streets as you as you used to do because we could play in the streets i mean that, that's the of course that's a major striking thing there we were always playing the streets because there weren't huge amounts of cars around um which has its own dangers which we'll come to probably but yeah it, I, I i don't really i didn't i didn't really think of it as being like heavily influenced by the war although obviously it was because i was much too young to realize that at all and so you know going on from that you you sent me your bio and there was a there was a sentence that was that was quite striking. You said that you, as a child, you spent a lot of time in hospital uh, due to clumsiness. So, so was your was your childhood Id- idyllic? And how did you end up in hospital quite so much? Well, well the, taking the last one first. I mean, um, yeah, I I think I I was well, I was both clumsy and experimental. I was like, um, I was the kind of child who would put his finger into an electric socket to find out what happens. <laughs> and you find out things really quick that, that way. Um, or, you know, oh, I wonder if the hot plate on that cooker is, it's, it's not, it's not glowing red, but is it still hot? So I put my hand on top of it and yeah, you know, it was still hot. So I burnt my hand. So it's things like that. Um, so I was, I went to hospital quite a few times, but I never stayed long. It was always like, oh, just getting bandaged up and we'll go home again. And um, so, so much so that the doctors and nurses would recognise wouldn't recognise me. So no, oh, it's just Alan. He's done something stupid again. Um, but I, in terms of, I I don't think. I mean, my childhood. I don't. I don't think of looking back of it as idyllic. I I felt, yeah, it was. I think it was okay. I was a spotty geek, you know um a spotty nerd um and um that kind of colors uh your 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 opinions later on i think looking back so i think i think my childhood was fine i, I had great parents who brought me up i think quite well i think i i, I think i'm fairly well adjusted I mean, that's hardly for me to say, but I think I'm fairly well adjusted. Um, um, but I, I don't. I'm not one of these people who who kind of thinks of the skipping through the fields, enjoying life thingy. I felt that um, the childhood is something you have to go through, uh, <laughs> and uh, um, and it, I don't think it wasn't. It wasn't hard. It wasn't hard. I was I was bright enough to go to grammar school. Um, and, uh, so in a, in that sense, I had a, a privileged upbringing, um, a privileged middle-class upbringing. My, my dad was a teacher, um, a math teacher. So, um, <laughs> my sisters always kind of didn't like maths because of that, but I, I, I found maths okay. You know, again, puts me down in the geek nerd bracket, doesn't it really? I actually quite like maths. 
Um, so yeah, so not I wouldn't have said idyllic, but certainly I felt that I had a reasonable time. I, I was a I was a I was a scout, so I did all the middle class things that you would do when you were when you were that age, learning how to cope with your friends, um, learning how to go through school. I, I was very I was a very I, in I always thought when I when I started to play D anD D, I was a very much of a lawful good type of type of a person. I was very very much. I will go by the rules, you know. <laughs> I wasn't adventurous in that sense. I wasn't. I wasn't rebellious. Not. I was not a rebellious. Not even as a teen was I rebellious. You. You talked about how games entered your life at a relatively young age. Sort of how old were you, and what games were they? Well, <clears throat> um, I think we started playing family games at Christmas uh, when we were about seven or eight, we used to play Monopoly and, and Cluedo and Formula One, those kinds of Waddington's, uh, Waddington's games. Um, but they were really, I, I was the only one in the family who wanted to play games outside that kind of Christmas period, which was the traditional family games one. Um, so those were the main, those were the main things that started me. And it was, it was, um, it's probably Formula One that uh, got me into design um, because it has got so many wonderful little mechanics for how to do a race game. Um, I mean, it, it's not just, I mean, Monopoly is kind of roll and move and I could see the mathematics of Monopoly, but it's roll and move, isn't it? And it's kind of not brilliantly interesting. And Cluedo has, was roll and move as well. So again, in fact, originally, apparently, originally, the Cluedo design didn't have the roll and move in it, but but um, <laughs> the publishers thought, but wait a minute, games have got roll and move. You have to have that in there. So they added it, and it made it a worse. It made it a worse game. But for, no, Formula One, the moving was done by setting the speed of your car. So you had a little a little cardboard. Uh, um, display with your speed on it and a little dial you could move. And similarly, you had a kind of brake wear gauge and a tire wear gauge. So they'd actually tried to kind of model the driving of a of a racing car in it. And I thought, oh, that's that's really interesting. It's not just a, it's not just a simple thing. It's they've, they've got some sophistication in there. And then they had a bunch of cards. It always makes it sound like feel like a kind of modern Euro game in a way, a modern Euro race game. Uh, and the cards were. Uh, or various things like you could increase your speed by more than normal, or you could do use a superb driving card to go around a corner at any speed you like, because all the corners you had to go to a specific speed, or you had the danger of spinning off. Um, and those mechanisms made it feel much more like a car racing game um, than than Monopoly felt like a real estate game. Um, and I felt, well, let's see if I can do something like that. Because obviously people have designed this thing, maybe I can do this as well. Well, it's, it's really interesting. It. It's it's interesting that you say that because I've spoken to a lot of people who, when they were kids, it never occurred to them that there was a person who made these things. And I guess I guess it never really did to me. You don't because it's not like a book. It certainly wasn't like a book at that time. You didn't have an author's name on the front cover. I I, I it never sort of occurred to me that these were authorial creations. But I mean, you. St- designed your first game at 11 do you think you're just a, a natural game designer um, it's 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 a kind of weird thing I, I think partly it's the wargaming that influenced that because i was a i was wargaming from well about 10 or so nine or ten i think getting getting the airfix 
models and throwing marbles at them as you start. And then I, I felt, well, wait a minute, if we're trying to, if we're trying to have a game which at least looks a bit like real war, you need to have some kind of parameters around which you can have this thing. It's not just, it's not just build a Cuisinaire rod tank and throw a marble at it. That's not actually how wars work. <laughs> um, and I think that went back to influencing me in terms of board games and, and the fact that I, I, we didn't have any rules for war games. And they were very, very, very difficult to get. I mean, it's, I think I was living in Huntingdon. You know, there weren't there wasn't access to kind of games shops or war games shops. So everything had to be done by mail order, which meant you had to have access to something which would tell you where to get these things or the odd book here and there. But even the books were difficult to get hold of um, because we weren't in a big city. Um, and so I felt, well, it, I had to design war games rules. So we, we would, I think, with schoolmates, we would we would actually write start writing down and recording decisions we were making in war games and then and then that automatically i think got me thinking about well board games have got rules as well somebody's had to do the design work um so i thought in that sense i was a natural game designer because i as i said i'm kind of lawful good i like rules <laughs> i like i like um i like the i like the parameters that you have to operate in so, so in a sense it was a kind of natural progression. And and you went on to study history and then you went on to do a master's in war studies. Was it games that ignited your his, your interest in history? I I I think it was because I, I was because uh, I'd already in, at primary school level been interested in in the uh, kind of war gaming side and, and and in order to in order to make war games rules you have to research stuff you have to actually find things out from books about the history and work out what actually happened so in that sense yes i think so and it uh it's noticeable that when i did o levels the equivalent of gcse's now um in for history i decided i opted specifically for political and military history O level rather than the normal boring as I thought at the time socio and economic history that was the mainstream so I actually I actually had to have a separate um, there were I think there were two or three of us who did political military history instead of the normal one we had separate class for that at um, at school and I, and I think it was quite interesting and flexible of the grammar school to actually offer that as a possibility. Because it wasn't a normal thing, I think. But there, I think there were like two or three of us who were quite keen on doing that, and they um, they bent over backwards to, to help us with that. I always found the military, political military history, much more interesting than the socio-economic, and that's largely influence of, of war gaming and doing research into that. Yeah. So your your first game isn't a war game per se, though that's certainly part of it, and this is. Maybe the granddaddy of sort of modern games, I guess, to some degree. And this is Civilization from Francis Tresham. How monumental is this game? This is a, I mean, this is a great game. This game came out in 1980, and uh, back in 1980, there weren't there weren't really long games that weren't war games. Really, I mean, there's there's hardly any long games. I mean, 18xx is coming in because Francis Tresham designed the 18xx XX games about the same time, or maybe even slightly earlier. Um, but this was a revelation, really. I think because it's this is a game which can take um, up to seven players, and you can, you can play it for twelve hours. I mean, that's 
for some people that's still not necessarily a long game but <laughs> it's a huge long game um um it's really i think we describe it as an epic game it's the kind of game where to play a proper seven player hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, a game of it. You have to actually arrange with seven people. Yeah, next Saturday, we're going to start at eight. We're going to keep going until we finish. And we're just going to play this thing. So you have to organize it well in advance. It's not a casual drop into the club, play it type of thing. Yeah, so it's a real genuine epic game um you, you know you know after 10 hours uh and it's getting nail biting towards the finish you really know you're into something special and that's that's the feeling you get from an epic game possibly was the first civilization it's certainly the one where you compare any civilization game to francis gresham civilization yeah it's a stupendous game and, you know, you've been around the British gaming scene for, for mm-hmm. most of your life. Do you have any experience with Francis Tresham? Did you did you ever meet him? I, I met him uh, two or three times. Um, I mean, he, he occasionally came to Eschenspiel. I had a few chats with him, but I never, I never, I wasn't involved in like playtesting his, his games. Um, so, he, so not, not, not a lot, but he was an absolute gentleman. Um, I mean, he, he was very old school, um, um, uh, such a brilliant designer, but self-effacing, um, and he, he, and, you know, very easy to chat to. Um, so I've, I, it was a real pleasure to, to meet him. Um, I know, uh, cause Richard Brees used to play, uh, used to play test with Francis Tresham, I believe. And he, 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 um, he says, he said that going around to Francis Tresham's house was a, was interesting because he would just be, he would just, it would just look so disorganized. There'd be bits everywhere, you know, and it would be very confusing and muddled. Um, but the output was tremendous, you know, that Francis Tresham's output of absolutely classic, brilliant games, long one. I think, I think designing long games that are really, really good so difficult because you have to get the balance right and you have to make sure people are engaged for the whole thing. So to have so many classic long games from one designer is exceptional. Um, and he used, to, he used to do most of his stuff, I think, on his own. So he, he, he didn't have, he didn't co-author things. It was mostly his own work. And a lot of his testing design would be done purely solo. So, I mean, it's, a, it's I think most... Uh, designers nowadays would have a whole group of people who would who would work on um, on the games and would have much more explicit development roles and things like that. But I think Francis Tresham tended to do things just himself. And so, you know, he invented 18xx. He invented 
the Civilization game, essentially, you know, Sid Meier built his computer game empire on Francis Tresham's game. Do you think that Francis Tresham is in some ways the sort of progenitor of the modern gaming world? I think so. Um, uh, Again, if you look back at 1980, the late 70s and 1980s, any game which is like two hours or more, is is basically a war game at that point at that period it's a war game there aren't there are just aren't long serious immersive games like that uh, in that period uh, well the, I suppose the closest you get is Conquistador uh, which was um, um, an SPI game which was obviously about the um, settlement of the new world um, but the, a lot of people would consider that to be a war game because it has got a lot of direct conflict in it. But so I think civilization, because the focus of that game isn't on the conflict, it's on how you build your civilization, it's on building cities, it's on trading. So all of these things which have got their own separate subsystems in that game, um, they are the epitome of what became more modern gaming methods. And there's no dice, of course. So... In fact, in the original game, there's virtually no luck at all. Um, even the trading, um, the things you get for trading are basically there's you get you get a number you get cards depending on how many cities you've got. Uh, the more cities you have, the more trade goods you get. But the trade goods for each multiple of cities are the same. So if you've got um, if you've got I think I think if you've got two cities, you get a salt. Two or more cities, you get salt, and then you get bronze for having six or something like that. So. You, when you're drawing off the deck, you're getting specific trade goods. The decks, individual decks for the number of cities you've got are not randomized um, unless you go to advanced civilization, which I think is a bit of a, a backwards thing. Because in, in advanced civilization, there are in fact um, two, there are two trade goods in each of the, of the trade good decks, which means that it, you can randomly get better or worse stuff, which is a bit of a, difficulty that i have with advanced civilization so yeah i love that game it's great and so you know you're an historian you did a bachelor's in history and then a a master's in war history how spot on is civilization i don't i don't think that uh it's it's a i don't think it's a model of how civilizations rise and decline um and i don't think that was the intention either um it's it's a great game and it's it's kind of it, it's model of how civilizations grow and uh, uh, and well in a sense they don't even fall in civilization so you, know, you can start the babylonians and you go all the way along to the, for the whole of the game with the babylonians and that's not how civilizations work <laughs> but that doesn't matter i don't think that distracts from the game at all it, and and i think i think there's almost no civilization games that that model how civilizations really work because they're mostly they're mostly focused on on the the, uh, the Whig version of history which is that progress will progress will happen in a in a specific way and it's all built on the underlying concept of how our western civilization has grown up so there's very little for example there's very little interest really in the gaming world in perhaps how the chinese civilization grew um, because I think they're not they're not seen as as the end point. And the end point is, you know, the Western internet and space travel, which is all about America, particularly American, United States 
civilization, which just seems the high point. Um, and and I think the, the re- more revisionist versions of of history uh, have got a different view of how civilizations rise and decline. Um, and we, we, I think now that modern historians will take a, a very much different view of this idea of progress. It's not, it's not like that at all. Um, so not, a, not, not a good model of historical civilizations, but just a fantastic game. It doesn't detract from me from the game. It's brilliant. The game's brilliant. So I want to talk now about your, your, life before you became a publisher. So your first real published game, you were published in the 80s, and this was a game called City of Sorcerers. You re- you were rejected by Games Workshop. What was the story of getting this game published? Right, yes. <laughs> um, City of Sorcerers was the first game that I designed that I thought merited trying to get published um i mean i designed it in the late 70s very early 80s um and played it played it with lots of friends and things and um uh i i never thought you could really get things published and have no idea how to do it at all um and then i met lou pulsifer um who was the designer of who well the designer of britannia and a number of other games and um we we got together he he actually he actually married the best friend of my wife so we were quite we were very close back then when he he came over to do a phd um in london because he's american um and and uh there were there were actually um six of us who played D and D together. He, he was a, uh, an early D and D advocate and taught us D and D, but he's, he was a published designer. I thought, Oh, you can actually get games published. I, that was a kind of revelation. As you said, as you said earlier, th- at this time you didn't get the game designer's name on the, on the box. So it wasn't clear. You know, it seemed that these games would just kind of magically appear out of a, out of a game publishing uh, company. But no, people actually designed them. So the fact that he'd done that <clears throat> meant that I thought, oh, I'll give it a, I'll give it a whirl, see if, see if anybody's interested in this weird fantasy game. So um, uh, I sent off a copy to uh, Games Workshop back in the days when they were, I think they'd only published their first four games, one of which, one of which was Valley of the Four Winds by Lou <clears throat> um, and Warlock. Um, things like that. So was it Warlock? I can't remember. Um, and I thought, well, I'll give it a, give it a whirl. So I, I just sent it off to one company and the one I'd heard of, you know, um, and I got a fairly, a fairly swift rejection from them. Uh, I was kind of so naive though. I think I just sent them, I sent them printouts of everything. And I didn't send them a proper functional, completely made copy of the game um this is back in the day when actually creating a prototype was really quite difficult because i was working on a bbc micro at the time and getting stuff printed out from from that with a little a little um dot matrix printer so it's really really very 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 crude um and i got a rejection and i thought oh well that's that's a, a bit of a, a pity um let's look around and see if i can find some other companies so i, I mean there were relatively few and that's when i Came upon, I'm not quite sure how I came upon Standard Games and Publications, 
I, it's, I, I can't. I honestly can't remember. Somebody may have told me about them, um, um, but uh, they were around. They were another company. So I uh, and they were they weren't actually local. They were down on the south coast, I think. So I um, sent off a, a full copy of City Sorcerer to them. And they were very. They were immediately were very interested because I think they're they're as a company. Uh, was a group of companies. They had a printing company. I don't know if people remember that back in the day, Avalon Hill, the Avalon Hill Games Company, were they had an associated printing company, Monarch Printing, um, and and part of what the games company is doing is feeding the printer. <laughs> so uh, I think what um, what Standard Games and, and Publications were doing was was feeding their printing company because they they could you know, if you've got an attached printing company, you're not having to pay them extra money to, for them to make a profit you can just you can print very relatively cheaply if you own the printer um and so they were looking for games to publish and i had this thing i think they were probably not getting very many submissions uh, so I, I had this city of sorcerers game and i had a number of other projects knocking around as well so they were very keen to to have that so they uh, published City of Sorcerers in, a, in a, a huge big box, a bit like the old kind of Monopoly style boxes, or even bigger than that, actually. Um, and that was the size of box, big flat box that they were producing their main game, which was Cry Havoc, uh, a medieval skirmish game. They were, they were um, printing that there. So they could just have those boxes and just put other games in them, which is what they effectively did. And they, they could print anything they could print was, was easy to produce. So they had counters, relatively flimsy counters and flimsy cards and things. Because in those days, the cards were not on cardstock. Um, even back to the, to like Kingmaker in um, 1974, cards were printed on big sheets, but punch cards, they were just printed in on um, effectively punch boards and you pre- press out the cards. So now this, now this proper playing card material. <laughs> <laughs> which meant they didn't last very long and, and and so you also wrote for tsr and you wrote for white dwarf and i've i've interviewed a few people for sort of from around this period lou included and it seems to me that everyone around this time <laughs> wrote for tsr and white dwarf were they just handing out contracts i mean what was the process of getting published uh, in these magazines they well <laughs> if you look at it from the point of view of them as a publisher uh, publishers of magazines have to fill up their magazine every month or however often they publish. So they they are usually absolutely desperate for material. They they they'll they'll very rarely have staffers writing stuff. They might they might have an editor and maybe an owner who might write as well. So they are desperate for freelancers to submit stuff. Um, and so that's how that that's how we did it. I think. Uh, I, so we were we were all freelance writers. Um, Lou and me and um, people like Marcus Rowland and other RPG writers. Um, um, so it, it, it actually, I mean, as long as you could write, um, it wasn't a, a huge difficulty get to get that kind of work. And that, 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 let's face it, it's not a proper job. It's getting paid in very small amounts of money. Or if, I mean, I started by doing game reviews for White Dwarf um, and, the basic pay was you get you got a copy of the game and I think you got something like twenty quid for a review or something like that. So um, the main attraction was supposed to be you've got your name in print, which um, when you've already published a game doesn't really cut much ice, I guess. Um, but yeah, so 
it, uh, I, I, I mean, looking back at it and being very frank about it, I think that as long as you were producing stuff that was publishable, they would publish it because they were desperate for stuff. Because you've got to keep, you've got to keep feeding that, feeding that magazine. That's what you've got to do. Um, I like to think that my stuff was good. I had to, but mind you, I mean, I did a history degree, as you know, and war studies MA. And um, when I came out of university, I could theoretically write. But I could write history essays, stuff like that. But it was te- my writing style was terrible, um, very, very dry academic style. And I had to relearn from scratch how to write for an audience. So, you know, writing game reviews was a great way of doing that. So I knew I had to write stuff which was entertaining for people. Um, and so I completely changed how I, how I did it. Um, and I started by... I would often start by trying to work out um, a great pun for a title for a game review. So, that, so that at least you start with a, always start with a joke, you know, <laughs> um, and then and then uh, yeah, write as entertainingly as possible. My best one, I thought, was um, my best one. I think was my review of the game Louis the Fourteenth. My title was that Sun King feeling. That's very yeah, good. That's, that's very thing. good. Really that's nice. very good. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you split with your publisher in the late eighties, and you said it was due to you know irregularities with regards to royalties. Was yeah. was this endemic at the time with board game designers, or were you just unlucky? Well, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, 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 I mean, most board game publishers at that time were small i mean even games workshop was was a small company um and i think they were just overwhelmed with the amount of stuff they had to do i mean standard games publications um was it was it was it was a very small company um particularly aware they were producing tens of thousands of games but you still got all the costs to go through i think they were just really really incompetent at the basic administration of running a running a company um I, I i mean they were not anxious to pay royalties obviously because nobody likes to pay money out um but when i came to, when we, the the upshot of of um the upshot of the problem was that i got an accountant to go in and look at their books and it turned out that they had got moderately reasonable records it's just that they hadn't paid me any royalties, and that was that was largely because they hadn't consolidated the records that they did have to work out how much they owed me. Um, now, that, it, from from my point of view, it was non-trivial because I hadn't been I had I had no royalties for eighteen months. So, and I knew the games were selling because they told me they were selling. They just hadn't paid me anything. But I think it was largely incompetence, and I think that doing the you know if you're a creative company. You're concentrating on the on the, or a publisher. You're con- concentrating on that creative process and that publishing stuff. You want to get stuff out there. Um, you're not concentrating necessarily on uh, on the admin that goes behind it. And I think with most small companies, it's the same. Um, I mean, even now, it's it's the same with with smaller board game companies and even with larger ones. Um, I think it's getting a bit more professional. Um, but it's, it's hard. I mean, I'm, <clears throat> now I'm on the other side of the fence to an extent. I realize how hard it is. If you're, I mean, if you're doing this as a hobby games company, which is what we're doing in Surprise Deck Games, it's quite difficult to keep your, your, your hands on that <laughs> basic admin while you're still trying to create 
new games and get them published. There's always deadlines. It's it's difficult. So I have some. I have a. I think I have a bit more sympathy now than, than I did back then when I got extremely cross. Um, and and hence we we kind of parted parted company. I went off and did other things. Now I know what you're thinking. What do I actually get if I join the five games for Doomsday Patreon? Deploy Salesman Voice. An absolute ton of bonus content is the answer. You can get some of this. A war of whispers. Whispers, you say? I'm doing a stage whisper. I'm not actually whispering. What's the difference? Well, because actually what I'm doing is actually talking. Whereas you're whispering. That's the difference. Because I'm a trained actor and you're like a techo. Or this. Nostalgia infects. It's a pernicious virus that leeches into the ripples of the brain. It's a neurotoxin that affects behaviour. As the reality of life and death sinks in, nostalgia, previously dormant, starts to pull levers in the psyche. And maybe even a little bit of this. Like smoking a fag or drinking a pint. Maybe having summer to eat. Or a little bit of a shag. All things, Steve, must come to an end. For as little as $5 a month, you could get Battle Battle Reports, where me and the fragrant Steven Cyrek report on a game as it's being played. Thoughts from the cabin. You like pretentious? Then you'll love these. And I even sometimes go outside and ask the hard-hitting questions that never needed asking. asking. To get all this and a feeling of smug superiority, just go to patreon.com forward slash 5G4D, join the community, and help me eat. That's patreon.com forward slash 5G4D. Because content... Never tasted so good. So good. God, I feel dirty. So your next game then is Lost Battles. And I was reading up on this for for this and it says this game claims to be 40 games in one. How true is this? Well, it's 40 scenarios. Yeah, it's 40 scenarios. Now, the reason this one is on my list is that it's a tour de force of wargaming, really. And the, the, also, the designer, Phil, Professor Phil Sabin, he was Professor of War Studies at King's College London, and I was at King's doing war studies. So, like, he had my dream job. <laughs> I could never I, – I mean, it, I could not have got it when I was there because, you know, it, it – there was no possibility of doing a kind of wargaming type academic um, job at that point. He, I mean, he, I think he, he started sometime in the nineties, I think something like that. Um, but you know, that, like I said, he had my dream job. If, if, if we, if we could have gone back, you know, 30 years, that would have been my uh, job. He, he um, yeah. Cause he, he did war, he's a professor of war studies, but he uses uh, war games, professional war games as part of his research so he's just academic professional war gaming i mean how how great is that it's um it's a stupendous thing to be able to do really um and i've kind of i haven't i haven't really done any professional war game of my own i have dabbled in 
trying to learn from war games. So uh, I've got a game called Mission Command Normandy, which is a kind of simulation game on the uh, World War II Normandy campaign. And that is much more a kind of academic affair rather than rather than simply a game. But but Lost Battles, yeah, is is Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, uh, every, well, loads and loads of ancient um, tactical engagements. And you can go through. You can compare. You can compare um, uh, uh, these um, ancient engagements. Um uh, and work out uh, whether Hannibal should have won or not, and what what winning means for these uh, ancient battles. I'm not an ancient historian at all, really, um, but this game really appeals a lot because you can recreate so many um, different battles um, in in one box. Um, and, and so that's why I like it. <clears throat> and so you know. War games, by their very nature, are historical. I mean, how well do war games evoke their period? And, you know, are there some eras of history that are better served by the war game world? And are there some eras of history that are neglected by it? Yeah, there are, I mean, World War II is the, is the kind of major theme of, of war games. I mean... I think nowadays most most periods have got some kind of war game covering covering them. I mean, a, f- a friend of mine, Graham Evans, who's a war game designer, miniatures war game designer, <clears throat> and I've just bought a load of his books. He's got he specialize he also specialises really nicely in um, really good titles for war games rules. I mean, he's done a whole range of different uh, games on on peculiar periods. He's got one on Sumerian Mesopotamia, way, way, way back. And he's called it To Err is Human. Ha <laughs> you see? Brilliant. Um, um, yeah, so there's lots of, and he's, oh, and, and he's the best, this is the best one. He has actually done a tabletop wargaming rule set on land conflict in mid-19th century China, and it's called Typing Error. Typing Error. Yes, that is the best title I've seen for a war game so, typing era. Anyway, um, so I think nowadays you can find a war game in almost anything, any period, any topic you like. It's 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 astonishing how much um, how much there is out there because the, the the cost of entry is is so low now. 
that almost anything you can think of, there'll be a war game of it. But I think in terms of popularity, the World War Two is is incredibly popular. America's Civil War is, America, is incredibly popular because of the United States influence. And there's a whole there's a whole bunch of stuff on ancient Well, like like with lost battles. So if you want to refight Cannae, um, then uh, there are so many different ways. Uh, and Napoleonics is the other big one, obviously, because um, there are endless games on the Battle of Waterloo. I mean, I. I went through a period a few years back of naively thinking that I could collect all Waterloo, uh, all Battle of Waterloo war games. And I quickly realised that this was probably impractical because <laughs> there's so many of them. Um, yeah. So um, in terms of whether war games actually a- accurately, re- accurately reflect the topic, that's a whole big story um, of its own, really. Um, and some some games try to do that, and other games, it's just it's just a a kind of theme it's not it's they're not they're not simulating not modeling it necessarily it's just a kind of theme that they're um setting something in i have a particular um uh, 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 i have a, a particular opinion about memoir 44 which is a, a very famous world war ii game and i don't like it at all because it it to me it just grates every time every time i see it because the there are certain bits of it are just so unlike anything in world war ii that it it offends my sense of simulation <laughs> and modeling so going on then i want to talk now about what you're known for and that's surprise their game so this was a game that you your wife charlie and game designer tony boydell started and and you know it's 20 years old now how did you meet tony Right. Well, Tony and I uh, met in Cheltenham through that little-known game, Magic the Gathering. Um, um, I think when I, when I kind of when I had children, I kind of stopped uh, designing games for a a little bit because it it becomes much more difficult when you've got little kiddies around to (laughs) to focus on things. Um, And when Magic the Gathering came out, like a lot of us uh, gamers, took up took up that that particular addictive sport, um, and I used to go down to the to the uh, well, a couple of pubs we used to play in Cheltenham, and I met Tony there. So we we would cross swords, if it, as it were, um, on the on the MTG tables there. So that's how we first met, and and um, Tony at that point had been designing. St- Toying around with stuff and designing little bits and pieces for quite a while, and he had he had his 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 infamous black overcoat game, which was a game he designed for his family. Really, that was already that was already around. This was a a, a board game of exploration in the house. Um, uh, so he was already designing, and eventually we we talked about this kind of stuff, and we both realised we had interest in game design. Um, and I've, I've always thought as Tony was being about 10 years behind where I was. Um, and so we thought, we were both thinking, well, you know, my background was in um, publications. My, my kind of real life job was in publications. So I knew how to get things published. And uh, Tony had some some games he was already uh, working on a really kind of almost finished, including Copper Twaddle's little card game. And we, we thought, well, why, why don't we actually have a little company, which was the main purpose of the company, be to promote our game designs. That was our original idea. We'd, we'd have a design company. We'd, we'd, we'd 
have these sell sheets and we'd take those sell sheets and and show them to to, uh, to publishers and then they'd publish our games that was our great idea for the company um and so we started surprise to games in the tail end of 1999 to do to do that that was the original purpose so basically as a vehicle for our game design that was the the major purpose and and so you know ssg has you know it started off with copper twaddle bloody legacy little card games in little boxes but you moved on and i think the first sort of big one was tara seat of kings which was one of your games why did you move on from those little card games into those bigger box board games was this just simply because it was the way that your interests led you well, it, in terms of as, as a company, we we had tr- we had we, we went to Essen, Essen Spiel. We went, it first went in in two thousand and two, um, and that was an eye opener. But we've talked about that elsewhere, I think, and I know you have as well. Um, and we 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 sold some copies of Copper Twaddle, um, but we used that. And we also went to the Nuremberg Toy Fair as a way of approaching other publishers, particularly German publishers, because they were the main ones that were that were there back then. There weren't, I mean, there were hardly any UK publishers. Um, it was mainly German publishers. And went around to those German publishers and tried to get them to, to look at our designs. Um, and really, we found at that point, it was incredibly hard to break into uh, um getting getting games accepted if you didn't already have a track record um and there were and there were relatively few slots for games in each individual company as well so you even if you got accepted it might be four three or four years before your game came out and we fa- we actually found it very difficult to to break in because i think that we were not we were not designing games for other companies we were designing games that we liked and I think I think <laughs> we were both sufficiently quirky in terms of what we wanted to design that we were unable to persuade other companies that they ought to risk their cash on our stuff. Um, so we decided, well, we still think, possibly naively, but as, as it turned out reasonably accurately, that other people would want to buy them if we published them ourselves. And so that's what we did. So we, we the, the, as I said, the first, as you said, the first couple of games were, were card games. But then Tara Seat of Kings we, was really because um, we didn't think anybody else wanted to publish that particular game and we thought it deserved to be published. So we did that ourselves. It was also, I think... We kind of felt, yeah, this publishing malarkey might be might be quite an interesting and potentially fruitful thing to do. We could actually eventually make money out of it. Um, that's how naive we were at that stage. <laughs> you can make money, but it takes a hell of a lot of time and a lot of luck. Um, and there's the old adage that if you want to make a small fortune out of game publishing, start with a large fortune. Um, and uh, uh, so we hadn't we hadn't actually um, internalized that particular difficulty. So that's why we did it. It was really because we, one, we couldn't get anybody else to publish it, and two, we still wanted to get it published. And actually we sold out pretty quickly of Tyrus of Kings. And, and so how has SSG mirrored the changes in the British game industry over the time it's been around, over the 20 years that's been around. And do you, th- and, and what extent do you think you've helped to foster 
a thriving game industry in Britain? Well, I, I wouldn't like to exaggerate our our influence on it. I think, I mean, I think our model of a games company is is particularly surprised to our gamey, in that it's two blokes um, who who just design and publish stuff that they like. And we do it as a hobby games company in the sense that we're producing hobby games and we're not having to earn a living at it because we have, a, we had our own, our own proper jobs, if you like. Um, so it wasn't necessarily typical of how people would do it, but we, we always took the view since we were helped, um, her, um, we were helped tremendously by Richard Brees at our at our very first Essen back in two thousand and two. He 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 was in the next door stand to ours, and he gave us huge amounts of fantastic advice, and we stayed friends with him since then. Uh, both about how to design games, how to get them published, how to handle Essen Spiel, and other such things that we felt well. Um, the UK the UK game design industry at that point is, is tiny. There's not very many people around, but lots of people want to do it and an increasing number of people were starting out and had had no idea how to do it so we thought well particularly charlie and i thought let's um let's let's get uk uh budding designers together um and let them know what we, what mistakes we've made so they can avoid them um and and tell them how we did it so we start charlie and i started running designer days and inviting um well anybody who anybody in the uk who really who wanted to come along so we we generally have 20 or so people and we used to run them two or three times a year back in the days when we could actually meet um and we would we would play each other's games and the the, the the interesting thing about this, rather than doing it as a normal playtest, is you've got other designers there, so you a lot of whom are very experienced, um, and so you get huge amounts of fantastic feedback from a, a, a day of of um, getting other, you know, really experienced people to look at your stuff. That's that's how we try to help, and we've always been very welcoming to new game designers um and i'm was always both of us always very happy to 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 um, recount our ssg experiences to new people so they can hopefully get a bit of a a leg up simple things actually very some of the things are very simple like if you've got a new game and you think it's really great don't mortgage your house to produce that game without first of all doing massive amounts of market research because we have we have seen people do this you know and uh, i remember back when i started out and i but well, to, to an extent um i didn't mortgage my house but i produced a game called starship tycoons back in the in the 80s and took it to earl's court um the earl's court toy and games fair and there's a notorious kind of dead man's alley there where you've got people like people like I was then with a, a small stand and the world beating game. And they're trying to flog this world beating game to buyers and it just doesn't work. And you can't afford to sink your life savings into this great game, which is going to replace risk or replace monopoly because it just don't work. It doesn't work like that. But a lot of people don't know that. So telling them that simple thing. is good. Your next game then is one actually that I've, 
played, and I'll I'll withhold my view on it. And this is Quartermaster General. This is the second edition. Is this a great introduction to war games? Because this is a war game that I see played well in the before times, played in my in my game group by people who certainly wouldn't think of themselves as war gamers. I'm, I'm very interested. You've played it, Ben. I didn't know that. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, Quartermaster General is a. Yeah, it's in my it's in my selection because it is a great game. Now, yeah, the question about well, it I mean, I would all I would call it a war game. It is it is a heavily immersive themed game on World War Two strategy. So, I mean, yes, it's it's kind of perverse not to call it a war game. But there are some people who think of war games as basically hex encounter style games where it's all about combat results tables or rolling lots of dice and things like that. And it isn't one of those. It is a, um, it's a, car- it's a card game with a board, um, and each of the six major powers in the game uh, have their own unique deck. Uh, and the, the deck contains not just standard things you expect in a game like this for building armies and, and attacking and stuff like that, but it also has... Uh, a lot of the flavour of the political and military uh, events that happened in the war, so that it's got it's got that flavour built into each nation's activities, um, and it's, it's in a way it 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 almost goes back to the kind of simplicity of diplomacy in terms of the board. So with diplomacy back in fifty nine. Um, the rules for diplomacy are really simple. It's just basically one piece occupies one area, and uh, if you attack another area, you have to have more pieces than defending pieces in order to take that area. Really, really simple. And the whole point of diplomacy is about the it's about the negotiation between allies and, and or pretend allies, um, and so the complexity comes from the player interactions. Now, in Quartermaster General, the really good thing about that is that again. The complexity comes from how the cards interact, but it also comes from how the players interact. So with Quartermaster General, especially with six, and you have two sides, you've got the Axis and the Allies, three nations on each side, but you're not allowed to have secret communications. So all your planning has to be done either by signaling with the cards or by publicly saying what your plan is going to be. And that's that's the beauty of that of that game. So you, you want, you know, you want, for example, you desperately want as great Britain, you want the United States to play lend lease at a particular time because lend lease allows you to take extra actions. But the only way you can get them to play it, if they don't already know that they're supposed to play it at that point is to tell them so that your opponents know that's what they're going to do. And it's those, so it's not just those card interactions. It's the, it's those player interactions, the conversations you have around it and the storytelling that goes into that. So your version of World War Two, you know, where um, where the the Italians stormed across into east into the east and took India and held this massive Italian empire um, for this Axis unexpected Axis victory because the Italians did it. That's the kind of storytelling you get in Quartermaster General. Again, I mentioned simulations. It's not a simulation of World War Two. It's it's a storytelling game where you're using those cards and those player interactions to tell your version of what happens in World War II. Um, yeah. And it only takes an hour. 
So it's you know if, if you play when you've played one game, you can just play another one. There, and it's it, it is attractive to non-war gamers as well. I'm I'm not exactly sure why, um, I because it has got direct conflict in it, um, and it is it's blatantly a war a massive war theme. But we have we have found that I think it's sufficiently similar to kind of card based Euro style or modern games that the fact that it's a war theme doesn't seem to put people off people aren't people aren't having to to work out really complicated bits and pieces about combat results tables and odds and things so it doesn't it to, to, to non-war gamers i think it doesn't feel like a war game and we we have had lots of games with this where you play with new players two or three of which are not war gamers at all and when you finish they say let's play again because i want to see what this different strategy will work you know that's the kind of thing we get with that it's, it's it's got that storytelling excitement um, for both war gamers and non war gamers. So I want to take you back now. I want to take you back to those murky days when you were in the college quad, smoking roll ups and learning things. And so I want to talk about because you said you did a master's in war studies, and that really stuck out to me. What does a master's in war studies entail? Oh, crikey. Um, yeah, right. Well, I mean, the one that I did was at King's London. It was kind of semi-attached to the – or it was alongside the history department. So war, war studies isn't just military history. War studies is looking at – it's supposed to be looking at war in the round. So it's looking at the politics of war. It's looking at the impact of war on society. It's looking at theories of war from from, from theorists throughout history. Um and it's looking at strategic studies as well. So it's got a whole a whole gamut of things, basically in the kind of history and social studies kind of areas. So it's a, it's a systematic study of war, uh, how states fight, what it means, how, what it, how it impacts culturally and socially as well. So it's a huge it's a huge area. Um, so that's that's what it that's what it is and we studied it in the war studies department then um, primarily through looking at a series of what you might call great thinkers about warfare in the past so um that that's how it was that's how it kind of hung hung the theory on so we had people like Douay who was a great naval um, naval warfare theorist and Clausewitz and and others. Um, so that's where that comes. So it was, it was it was very much looking at what other people in the past have thought about war and written about war, and what the impact of the practical impact of war was then. And there's a huge area of contemporary war studies. So it's looking at. Um, well, you might look at the Iraq war now, Afghanistan, or <clears throat> the future of war. These all these kind of aspects come into it a lot. So, a lot of these things are influenced, or can be influenced heavily by by war gaming, because a lot of the um, p- professional war gaming, particularly by Department of Defence and Ministry of Defence in the UK, um, that Department of Defence in the United States and the Ministry of Defence in the UK, they're using um, professional war gaming by very clever people. Um, not including me, I um, to to develop the 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 stance of the UK in 
the world where conflict is kind of ubiquitous um, and what you might do you know what we might do for example if the russians attack estonia you know those kinds of things kind of questions what what we do about the the the, the big burning questions nowadays in this kind of area ge- geostrategic ones are things like the opening up of the arctic now that now that people can move through the arctic ocean um, that has got major impl- implications for the whole of that area because exploration becomes much more much easier so there's big uh geostrategic potential conflicts between the the states that are up there and how do we deal with with this those are some of the big big questions and so who for you is the greatest writer on war and and why do they hold that position for you well i suppose i i probably ought to say clausewitz drink um and um that that's well that's because of on war literally um, and because because I produced the March of Progress, which was our little pocket campaigns game, uh, stimulated by my rereading of On War, as we war studies people sometimes do. Um, so uh, the reason why, well, I think it's because he, well, he was writing in the um, in the uh, first half of the nineteenth century, kind of romantic ish period, but he was taking a of a theoretical view of total war, a very philosophical theoretical view initially of total war because he was influenced strongly by uh, by Napoleon. Um, and so he was building his this philosophy of war from scratch. And I like I like that that approach. Um, and and of course that kind of approach was then used later on um, by Germans particularly in their analysis of of warfare um, in terms of, you know, fighting the first world war and the second world war um, and or at least, or at least developing the German general staff that led into those kinds of situations. Um, and th- I think the interpretation of Clausewitz is so critical because the, because he can be easily misinterpreted if you don't read it carefully. So the, the, the old adage that war is politics by other means I think that th- that can be a lot of that. The, the, a lot of the text surrounding that can be misinterpreted, and and his 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 whole stance here is that war is so tricky that it's really it, it, his his research really and his his philosophy reinforces the idea that war is a last resort. Yes, it is politics by other means, but when you cross that line between peace and war. The line is critical because you can't tell what happens once you've crossed it. So predicting what happens once you've crossed it is so difficult that I think a proper reading of Clausewitz would lead you to not do it. Um, and I've become, I think, I've become less and less keen on any use of military force for any purpose whatsoever, apart from, apart from defending yourself in in cases of extreme prejudice like overrunning a state or something like that i'm much less inclined towards use of military power now um and that's partly because of the reading of clausewitz um than i was even when i started looking at, at warfare so i think that the importance of clausewitz is that close reading of it understanding the philosophy because it leads you to reject 
war in a lot of cases, particularly in the modern world. So your next game then is Azul, but it's not the the familiar yeah. one that we all know and love. This is Azul Summer Pavilion. Why this version? Of yes. <clears throat> well, I think well, Azul, Azul. Firstly, any of the Azuls, because of the tactile nature of those pieces, don't you just love them? Aren't they just great? Because. If I'm if I'm honest, I there was a game that came out that year, or, or maybe the year before, called Dragon Castle from Horrible Guild. Oh right, which was which was it, and also an abstract, and it's mahjong type tiles, and I felt that they were far more tactile, and they were engraved with their symbols, far more tactile and far more sort of enjoyable to handle than the Azul tiles, and yet it's Azul that's won out. I, I personally don't quite get it. Okay, uh, well I, I don't know that game, so it may be it may be. I mean, Hive again, Hive is a great game for that. It was a tactile feel. I love those those kind of things. So I mean, okay, that was one of the reasons. I think I think that. Now we're sitting in our cabin and it's all a bit grimy and dirty and horrible. You've got lovely kind of washable, um, are they, are they plastic lacquer pieces, whatever they're made of? I don't know what they're made of. Um, and you, you've got that feeling of, 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 of the tactile. But rather than, the, the, I think the basic Azul, the re- I had a problem with the basic Azul largely because it doesn't really work very well as a two-player game. I mean, it claims, I think it claims two to four, is it two to five? I can't remember. But the two-player doesn't really, doesn't really cut it because you get to the end game. And the end game, you know, the last three turns or so in the two-player game seems to me that you can't predict you can't predict who's going to win necessarily, but there's nothing you can do about it. Whatever you do, you can find yourself into a situation where you're going to lose, and whatever you do, you'll still lose. It's just that it all hinges on a, a particular turn, and you can't predict which turn it hinges on. So the two-player game kind of collapses at the end, whereas it, in, a, in the Sam Pavilion version, it doesn't, it doesn't do that. It's, it's really good as a two-player um, as well as multiplayer. And and I think, again, as we're sitting in our cabin, um, I don't know how many people we've got to play games with, actually, in our cabin. Well, we might have well, more, well, might have more well, survivors. I'll be generous. There. As many as you choose. There are survivors yeah, yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think we, 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 would play, we would play these games quite a lot. And I think Summer Pavilion's got more depth. Um, for an abstract, it's got quite a lot of depth because they've got multiple scoring uh methods and you've got um good strategic choices and tactical choices that to make so you can choose you can choose to go for lots of the of the scoring of the completed stars or you can choose for um uh, the the bonus scoring on the on the numbers it's got a lot of strategic choice in there as well as tactical stuff that's why i like that which is a bit more than I, I think. If we had the original Azul, we'd probably find it gets a bit tedious after about the tenth play. And so, are you a fan of abstracts? You know, you're a big war gamer. You went through a Euro phase. Are abstracts part of your gaming life? I quite like abstract. I, I, I do quite like abstracts. I'm not. I don't do a lot. I don't play a lot of abstracts. Um, but I mean, things like Chakra, I like that as well. I, I do like. I do like abstracts i mean i i i think my preference is still for immersive war games um but i i think abstracts are are, are good i mean it's 
it used to be the case way back that some people were saying, oh, you can't, you can't publish abstract games because nobody buys them. But I think that's, that day is long gone. Um, um, so I'm quite pleased because I'm hoping that we will shortly be publishing our own, our own abstract two-player. <laughs> so I'm hoping that that, uh, that um, market for abstracts will stick around for quite a while. And, and on that then, do you think Azul is a true evergreen? They come around so often. You know, Catan is this. Ticket to Ride yeah, is yeah. this. Do you think Azul is an evergreen that we'll be talking about in 15 years, 20 years' time? I think so. I, th- I think the, the, pr- probably the, the original Azul... It's difficult to say, isn't it? But I think well, um, it'll either be the original Azul or it'll be some of Avilion. I think the, the danger with an Evergreen is that you get too many expansions. People get muddled about what the hell the game is. Um, I mean, Car- Carcassonne's a good, similar kind of Evergreen one, isn't it? I think Hunters and Gatherers stands the test of time quite well. And I think I think Azul will, I mean, at the moment, the rating, well, I don't know if we take care, take much notice of, PGG ratings, but Azul from Pavilion is quite high. Azul is higher, but Azul from Pavilion is quite high as well. So I, I think so. It's got it's got sufficient. It's sufficiently simple to explain, and has sufficient depth of play that it it probably will be. But then, as I often say, nobody knows anything about games anyway. Popularity is so difficult. <laughs> So I want to talk now about the future. So you've mentioned it briefly, but SSG has embarked on a, a pocket campaign series, and these are small war-themed games, and you've had The Cousins' War, then you had uh, The March of Progress, and the third one escapes me, going to have to help me. The Ming Voyages. The Ming Voyages, that's right. What's your intention with these? Uh, yeah, this is our this is Surprise Dare Games' first uh, attempt at having a kind of brand image or at least a, a brand for the series. Hence, calling them all pocket campaigns. So, the intention here is to have this have a um, a small box game with a lot of depth of play, relatively cheap price point, um, same box in each for each game. So you can you can have them lined up on your shelf and we've we've numbered them all so we've got one two and three um and the idea is that we will produce one or two of these per year if we as long as we've got the the quality uh, um there um and we'll just keep going until forever (laughs) and and, you know ssg is ssg has been a company that primarily published your and tony's designs um with these pocket series of games, is your intention to go to other designers? Because David Mortimer has designed two of them. Though. Yeah. Yes. Um, we are. I, I'm very happy to have submissions from other designers for pocket campaigns games. We. I would. As I said, I'd like. I'd like to make sure that we have got this this particular quality. It has to. It, there has to be. Uh, it's a relatively small number of components. It's really kind of a pack or two of cards, maybe a small board, some wooden pieces, maybe two or three dice. Um, so it's relatively inexpensive for people to buy, but there has to be a lot of game in there. There has to be a lot of really good decision-making for players in the game. Um, and with the best one in the world, I can't come up with everything for this. And there are a lot of people who who are really good at designing 
this type of game out there. Um, so, I mean, Dave, as, as you said, David Mortimer designed the Cousins War, um, and it was me and David did the Ming Voyages, and I've done the March of Progress. Uh, we, we've got uh, our, our next one, um, I'm very much hoping, will be on the Stephen and Matilda Anarchy period in the 12th century, which is being designed by Rob Harper. Um, and we've got a couple of us who are working on a World War Two one, uh, you know, because World War Two is like popular, <laughs> as I said before. So I'm hoping that we can get. I'd love to get a World War Two hex encounter game in that format, because if we can do that and have really good depth of decisions in that format, that uh, uh, would be a, ought to be a really successful game if we can if we can do it. So going back to my roots in the sense of going to a hex encounter type approach, um, just for once, but using loads and loads of the modern techniques we have for wargaming within that, but in that really small form factor. So that's the, that's the general idea. So when you, when you look back over your life in games, you know, from let's, when you think about 1982, your first published game up until, you know, coming out with doing your first Kickstarter and having games coming out now, Firstly, how do you feel about it? And secondly, what do you think your contribution to the world of gaming has been? Ooh, big, big questions. Yes. Um, I, I, feel, I feel pretty satisfied with what I've done over my game design career so far. Mind you, you're only as best as your next game, really, aren't you? But I feel reasonably satisfied. I mean, I I did have dreams when I was um, shortly after I'd left college, when I'd actually had a published game. I kind of had a, had dreams of maybe um, producing, uh, uh, you know, large quantities of high quality, very very popular games, and earning a lot of money, and being able to. Um, and being able to you know, earn my living doing this, um, and I'm not. I'm. I'm kind of. I'm kind of. Hmm. Kind of torn. I'm kind of mildly disappointed that I didn't take the plunge on that. But I think I didn't take the plunge on that for all the right reasons, which is basically it's an incredible risk, and we had a small family. So I am. I am content with what with what I've done with this I think that in terms of influence on the uh, the kind of world of gaming um it's a big it's a big world and I think I it would be it would be um inappropriate of me to overstate what what we have done surprise their games I think the main thing that we have done <laughs> surprise there is to show that you can you can do this and you can sustain it on the long term. You can actually, and we're still here, 20 years, we're still, we're still here. And there's not very many companies that can say that. So, you know, persistence pays <laughs> in a sense. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm proud of where we've got to with Surprise Stare Games. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm quite proud of, of Confucius, which is, you know, my, my big box games. I think, um, uh, um, did have quite a reasonable impact um, at the time when that came out back in um, in in two thousand eight. Although for various reasons it didn't really quite do what we wanted it to do, but that's a whole different story to that one. So yeah, I'm I am I am content. 
with with how things have worked out. So your last game then is a big one, and this is Too Many Bones. Why are you taking this one to the cabin? Yeah, I this this is just exceptional. I think I think this. I mean, when I first when we first got this, I thought. This shouldn't, this shouldn't ever work. You should never be able to produce this. This is absolutely insane in terms of production ratio. It's um, chip theory games, and it's a dice builder RPG. But the thing, you could, you could play this underwater, and it would play quite happily because all the cards are plastic, all the pieces are near, all the um, player mats are neoprene. It's got, it's got, you know, dozens and dozens of unique dice. Um, it's it's got um, storytelling. It's got adventure. It's got player interactions, and it's it's cooperative. Um, it's got everything in there, and it's. I think that this game because it plays uh, the basic game plays one to four, so I can play it solo. If nobody else wants to play, I'm quite happy to play that solo. I can I can sit there in the in the in the leaky cabin when it's dropping on it's dripping on the table. I can just wipe the stuff down, you know. Um, but it, it's. This is this is one of those games where you think, how did anybody r- believe that they could produce a game with this much stuff in it and sell it to people, you know, for for huge amounts of money? And of course, it's not only done the original game; it's got f- masses of expansions too. I mean, am I allowed to take expansions? Because if I could take expansions, I'd probably need a truck to take them with. But I'd take the exp- all the expansions as well, because then you've got endless replayability in there. It's um, yeah, it's great. And so, when you play a game like Too Many Bones, and you think back to those games you were playing in the seventies and eighties. How far have we come? Or is it still basically the same thing? Oh, I think we've come a, I think we've come a long a long way really. I mean, uh, <clears throat> I look back at then when I was playing D&D uh when I started playing D&D, we were playing um mainly on a squared gra- piece of graph paper with counters to represent our characters with a number written on them so you could see which one was mine and which one was yours um so there we were using we were having to use our imagination all the time and we didn't have the physical representation of what we were actually doing um on the table um and that was that was good and i I think for storytelling that's that's probably all you need but things like too many bones um where you've got the fizz rep in front of you, it helps a lot. You've got much more coherent and easy to understand rules that everybody will agree on. I mean, back in the early days, nobody could agree on what the war games rules were. So we'd have endless arguments about the rules because back in the back in those days, particularly with war games, war gamers, war game designers would pride themselves on having written only one sentence for the rule rather than a whole paragraph. Now, the trouble with that is if you don't actually quite get what the design intention was from that sentence, any ambiguity would lead to endless arguments. Now, nowadays, although that can happen, it's much, much less likely. Rules writing has got hugely better. Uh, So Too Many Bones, if you like, is at the other end of the scale of of that. It's it's well-written. It's beautifully produced. It's... I was going to say overproduced, but I don't think it's overproduced. I think that if you're going to do a game like 
too many bones, you've got to be completely, totally, utterly lavish. You've got to have these ridiculous neoprene player mats that people can use. So you can spill your coffee on it and it doesn't actually matter. All the cars being plastic is another thing which you think, what? That's crazy. But it kind of works because it's supposed to be this lavish experience. It's like like I was talking about with Civilization. That's an epic game. So that when you sit down to that game, you've had to plan it in advance because you know it's going to be like 12 hours and you've got to have seven people to play it. I think with too many bones, it's not quite as epic as that in terms of organization. But certainly when you start getting the too many bones stuff out, you're laying the material out. You're thinking, wow, look at the look at those gorgeous pieces. Um the stories are, 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 are always built to a climax. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's much more evocative, I think. Uh, and it's using that physical representation to be much more evocative. And it's easier to get into than a lot of those old games were. So, yeah, we've come a hell of a long way. So, one more question then. You're, you're heading out to Warboys, escaping the the uh, the southern zombies and you're heading to the cabin down the road 88 miles an hour and you go around a corner and the back door of the car flies open four of the games oh. fly out down a ravine into a river and are swept away to the sea oh. which one do you hope is sitting on oh. the back seat of the car that is so difficult that is so that's such a difficult question but i think i would go for quartermaster general I think I would I would just grab that. Well, for a start, it's going to be much easier to grab than too many bones because, you know, I'm going to break my arm trying to catch that one. Quartermaster General, I think, because it's it's just a great game and it and it will play two to six and it's 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 good at any player count. Um yeah, I would definitely go with Quartermaster General. It's got it's got everything I want for both war gamers and non war gamers. So yeah, it's great. That would be Fabulous. my number one choice. So if people want to get hold of you, see what you're up to, uh, buy some games from you, how would they go about doing that? Best way to get hold of me is by email, alan at surprisedairgames.co.uk. Fantastic. Well, Alan Paul, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ben. It's been a real pleasure. You can support the show in many ways. You can tell your friends. You can talk about it on social media. You can talk about it in your own blog, podcast or video. Or you can support it directly by going to patreon.com forward slash 5G4D for a rolling donation or for a one-off donation, hitting the PayPal link at the bottom of the website 5gamesfordoomsday.com. It's these donations that keep the show going. Also, if you want to say something nice about the show, or if you want to say something horrible about the show, you can contact me on Twitter at 5games4doomsday, or send me an email at 5gamesfordoomsday at gmail.com. And if I've managed to leg it from the and the Freedom Day plague wave, I'll see you in two weeks for another 5 Games for Doomsday. Doomsday.